Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Follow the Leader, a podcast assessing leadership and what makes someone a good leader. Are they born or are they made? Leadership qualities and more. This is a podcast. You want to subscribe if you want to be a better leader. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Follow the Leader. I am your host, Ellie Mandelbaum, and this podcast is about leadership and what makes one a good leader, if they are born or made. In Follow the Leader, I interview a variety of leaders to understand what makes them effective. In this episode, we are speaking with Ellie Beer, the founder of United Hatzalah of Israel and president of U.S.-based organization Friends of United Hatzalah. Uh, we'll get to why it's called United in a few minutes. United Hatzalah of Israel is an independent nonprofit, fully volunteer emergency medical services organization that provides fast and free emergency medical first response throughout Israel. To give you context on what Ellie has accomplished to date, um, United Atzala began with 15 volunteers. Today boasts over 6,000. Ellie, if I'm off, then you could tell me in a minute as well. Of EMTs, paramedics, and doctors who volunteer on a 24 7, 365 day a year basis across the entire state of Israel, utilizing the latest in technology as seen in its innovative ambu cycles and sophisticated command center. It is sophisticated. I have some pictures I will be putting up later. In Jerusalem, United Atzala responds to over 800 emergency calls daily. Probably a little bit more. I think that's a little outdated information. Its first responders now train emergency response teams in countries around the world. The biggest stat that I think is amazing is that I think uh, the last time I read it, they saved over 3 million lives, which is just a phenomenal, if you put it in context, how many people that actually is, especially in Israel. Um, so, Ellie, welcome. I hope I covered everything. Um, if not, you know, feel free to fill in the blanks on your background. First of all, thank you very much for having me. and. Uh I'm uh, excited about the whole uh, interview. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, so podcast is definitely a new form of getting your story out there and really trying to get people to understand what it takes to run, you know, create and to run um, United Atala. So, you know, we're going to jump right into it. Growing up, were you active? Were you an active leader? Were you a leader at all? Or were you just more on the behind the scenes type of guy? You just, you know, kept quiet to yourself. Well, I grew up in Jerusalem, and uh, at school, I uh, I was always looking for new initiatives to uh, to be, uh, you know, coming up with new ideas. I, uh, I in school, I came up with a lot of new things, and I always saw uh, myself in a in a leadership role in in class, um, more as a not in the in the studying part, but uh, more of the social part. And, uh, and that's how I got into really, uh, in, I think it was more growing up in, in Baizvagan in Jerusalem, um, I saw a lot of need to bring in new things. Like I, I uh, we didn't even have a basketball court in school, so we didn't have soccer in school. And I, I remember fighting for it and, and creating it ourselves. We had to do all these things our own. So it started from very young. Got it. And so, you know, 
I know the story of, of what made you create Hatzalah. Um, I think your father was sick. I mean, I, I want to talk a little bit about that, is the, the how and the when, right? So when did you realize that you wanted to get more involved or that you, fi- that you found the need or a void in, in, in you know, emergency response? Well, something happened to me as a child that really changed the way of, of where my direction was. I was a, I was a child, I grew up in Bagan. my parents were American, uh, everything was great, loving family, and then they had a terror attack very close to where it was. And I remember as a child, you know, the, the, I remember, like it just happened yesterday, this terrible bus blown up and people killed and Many people were hurt, and, and I remember the trauma for weeks and months. And this was um, one of the biggest traumas our neighborhood ever suffered from in Bayabagan, uh, the number 12 bus. And growing up, I always said to myself, one day I want to go save someone's life. Uh, so that led me to uh, wanting to be, be a volunteer in an ambulance. And uh, that eventually, when I was 15 years old, I went to volunteer in, an am- in the back of an ambulance and uh, began to be the dome. And uh, that's when I realized that it's very difficult to save anyone's life in an ambulance. Being in the back of an ambulance for a year and a half, um, and I used to do a lot of shifts on the back of an ambulance as, a, as a assistant to an EMT, uh, like, a, like a first aid Mm-hmm. Give, uh, caregiver and and I used to go help a lot of people but never really got to save anyone um, we used to uh, go out to serious emergencies car accidents and, and heart attacks and strokes by the time it came to real emergencies I'm not talking about simple emergencies where people could just wait for an hour mm-hmm. 40 minutes but when we came to emergencies where people's lives depended Upon our help, we never really made it on time. And I used to write down, I was a very serious young boy, and I used to write down the, the amount of time it took us to get to every emergency. And I, and I came up with incredible statistics that the amount of time from the minute we receive the call until we arrive is average of 17 minutes. I don't know about you, maybe people in Hashmonaim could breathe Stop breathing for 17 minutes, but I never met anyone who could wait that 17 long. minutes without breathing. So, so you okay? So you, you have that right? So, yeah, you're on the back of an ambulance. You're, you're you're doing your part to really get involved, and all of a sudden you're seeing the void, right? You're seeing there's an issue, right? You identify the issue. It's very similar to business, right? You, you identify the problem, right? You see it, and you see the lack of response. You see that you're really not getting there enough soon enough to really save them right it's more you know so what did you then do with that you know what did you realize did you tell the up the higher ups did you you know where, where did you go from there well at that time I, I i had a tragedy that i was involved with when i was 16 and a half doing cpr on a seven-year-old boy who choked while he was having lunch and we were the ambulance available to respond to his emergency. And the mother was hysterical, waiting for us to come save her son. It, it, for her, it looked like we, we took us three hours. But it took us only 21 minutes to arrive to her. And by the time we got there, we started working on this child 
and we were crying while we were working on this child. It wasn't an easy CPR. You know, you do CPR, anyone is hard. But when you're doing it for a 100-year-old man, it's much easier than when you're doing it for a 70-year-old boy. And the 70-year-old boy didn't die from a bad accident or a terrible illness. This kid died from the most simple thing to save this kid. And we were the first ones to start helping him 21 minutes after it happened. While a doctor was on the same block walking his dog. He didn't even know this kid is suffocating to death. And he died. <laughs> and after that incident, I realized that so many people are walking around emergencies. That ambulances are on the way to save these people. But these people who could save them don't even know about it. And ambulance systems like where I was a volunteer, like Maginda Dome and other ambulance systems in the world, always want to keep that information to themselves. They don't want anyone else to know that someone needs help because it's their business. They transport, they make money out of the transport. Every single ambulance in Israel who transports emergencies makes money from it. In America, a lot of them, not all, but in Europe, a lot of them make money from transports. So when they get a call, their best interest of their organization is to respond to that call and no other ambulance service should respond to the call. It's like if, if I call a Lyft, the Lyft are going to realize it's nine minutes, they're not going to send Uber who could be two minutes earlier. <laughs> so I realized ambulances are really, really important on the process of saving lives but could hardly save anyone. And they don't get there fast enough and they don't share the information with people who could get there faster. So I came to them and I actually offered many, many years ago. As a child, I was 16 years old. I said, guys, we have hundreds of volunteers in Magandu the Dome and others were paramedics in the army and others. Why don't you just openly share the information with anyone who could respond to emergencies? This way, a lot less of people will die. But they thought it wasn't a good idea. You know, we were in Israel, so bureaucracy is one of, <laughs> one of Israel's um, uh, uh, nicknames is uh, Mr. Bureaucracy because everything here is hard to, to, you know, to accomplish. But I realized that if you want to accomplish anything in Israel, you have to use Israel's best innovation called chutzpah. Mm -hmm. So I said, if you don't want to share the calls with us, we're going to get the calls without you. So I actually showed the guy in charge, like he was like the head of the union, the head of the employees, the head of the organization, all that thing. I said, you know what? It's all right, I'll manage without you. I just need the emergency calls to route it to me. You don't want to route it to me? I'll get it without you. And I had some bar mitzvah money. And uh, I was, I never I never really spent my bar mitzvah money. And I made some money doing some handling. I was like a little mm -hmm. mocker. So I had some money aside and I actually bought a few police scanners in Radio Shack in New York. And these scanners are what helped us start United Hatzalah eventually. I mean, we started Hatzalah in Jerusalem with Bayi Pagan, just listening in to their emergency calls through CBs. I don't know if you, yeah. anyone here remembers. CB radios, yeah. CB radios, it was, uh, it was sold. Every truck driver in America had one. Yeah. You could listen to the police, you could listen to the fire. This chutzpah initiative is what led to this destructive, uh, maybe, uh, revolution that we, we, we change the way people get saved. Instead of waiting for an ambulance with people with a uniform, we'll have a next door neighbor who's a plumber, but he's 
by chance a paramedic as well because that's what he studied is, a, is his hobby mm-hmm. or or a teacher who she, who she is uh, an English teacher but all of a sudden a neighbor is having a heart attack she could run over and save this person and slowly we started recruiting more and more volunteers and giving them these walkie talkies so, so I, I mean you're you know it's fascinating because you know you're at a young age you know and you're, you're trying to solve a, a, a really a major issue right response time a response time also factoring that there's a lot of volunteers that could help. But what was the, you know, when you're trying to recruit those people at a young age, skepticism definitely is there. Right? So how did you, you know, get people to jump on board? Was it hard? Was it easy? Did the idea sell itself to get people, to get volunteers into it? Well, people made fun of me in the beginning because they thought it was a very stupid idea. They thought I'm, um, in Hebrew, they call me Tlaib, you know, someone who's uh, over... <laughs> How do you call that in English? A dreamer or a... a dreamer, or a, someone who's uh, overexcited about something. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it would be amazing just listening into their walkie-talkies and stealing emergency calls from them. <laughs> and they thought I'm a little crazy for doing it. I, now I know I'm crazy, but then I thought it was just the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So when I went out to my first emergency, I remember the first person I actually buffed a call of my game to the dome was a man who was hit by a car and I was 30 seconds away from that emergency. I just ran there by foot. And I, and I got there, this person was on the floor bleeding terribly from all over and he was bleeding from his neck. And I had no medical supplies on me or nothing. I had a walkie-talkie in my hand, a CB radio. And uh, I put it in my pocket and I... And I been down to this man and he's hardly breathing he's, he's bleeding all over and uh, I took my yarmulke and I used it as a tourniquet to stop his bleeding and uh, well, eventually when the ambulance arrived it looked like it took a very long time but eventually the ambulance arrived they took him to the hospital I, I wasn't sure if he's going to survive or not and then about uh, two days later I get a phone call to see are you Ellie Beer I said yes they said well, my father is treated by you on Hafizgah Street, and um, and he woke up this morning in Hadassah Hospital, and we want to thank you for saving our father's life. So I was like crying. I never got such a great news. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a year and a half after I volunteered in the ambulance. I never actually heard the words, thank you for saving my life. It's my first time. I, I heard many times people say, thank you for helping me. Thank you for helping my mother. Thank you for schlepping her. Thank you for this, but never said the words. Thank you for saving my life. How old so, you were? What you were? Eighteen? This at the sixteen time? and a half. Six and a half. Now. So when I went to the hospital to visit him, it was the most exciting moment. I came into the room. I didn't know what to expect, but he gave me such a beautiful hug, such a great feeling to get a hug from someone. And while he's hugging me, he says to me, "Thank you for saving my life." I was like, I had chills in my whole body, and. Then he took his hands off me and I realized he had a number on his hand. <laughs> and that number with the letters, it was something that I, I actually never saw these numbers so close. None of my family were Holocaust survivors. My distant cousins never made it and my closer family was all American. So I never really saw a number so close. And when I saw that and I saw how easy it was to save this person, I realized that this is what I want to do in my lifetime. 
and other people heard the story. I mean, everyone in, in, that heard the story, I remember they had a guy who had a bakery outside of this emergency. His name was Akiva Pashkinas. He was there, he had a bakery on Hapis Street where this accident happened. Mm. And he ran into the bakery and he was getting me some, you know, um, he was trying to help. He didn't have any medical equipment or any knowledge. But he said he, he, he got me some bags. He thought I could use bags because they said, who has gloves? No one has gloves. Uh, he gave me some bags to use. I didn't use it in the end. I used my own bare hands. But a few weeks later, he registered to become a volunteer. He himself, this guy, Kiva, and other people like him. So word started getting out. Word started getting out immediately that how and Atella and, and exists in Brooklyn before, but we really didn't have any connection. Atella in Brooklyn was a was a was a, a, a wonderful organization in Williamsburg started and others, but this was Israel. We had my to be the dome. Everyone thought, oh, we have a Jewish organization. We don't need any Atella, but we need Atella more than anywhere else because. Israel is much more complicated, and traffic is crazy here. Mm -hmm. And this is not Borough Park, a small neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You're talking about Jerusalem with 800, 900,000 people. Mm -hmm. People would wait sometimes 20 minutes, 25 minutes for help. And when, when they really needed us, we couldn't get there in time. Only very lucky people were saved because they were very close to us. Yeah. So that's a problem that I so we need to solve. So what I did is, it's like starting a religion. And actually, I love history, and I, and, I, and I learned about other religions, how they started. And, and you know, you, go, you, you have to really not only preach, you have to actually show an example. Mm -hmm. My religion was saving people's lives, and I started recruiting more and more people. And then we started getting these motorcycles and, and turning these motorcycles into ambulances. We said... How could we get on time to emergencies when we get stuck in traffic all the time and we can't even park our cars? When we get to a building when we have to go treat someone and we can't park it anywhere, we have to park it like a block away or two blocks away, run with, uh, with medical supplies and oxygen tanks and defibrillators and run up and we couldn't even breathe all the time we got there. So we actually said, let's, let's go ahead and disrupt the whole ambulance idea. Ambulances great, you need ambulances, but you need something before an ambulance. You need a volunteer who gets there in 90 seconds. The way to do it should be on motorcycles. And if you think about it, no one else, no one else in the world ever did this before. So, so how did you take, you know, how did you go from yourself, you get some early volunteers into building, right? How did you get people to follow you in that sense, is it right? So you were leading by example, right? So you saved lives and that's what you were able to get other people to do the same. Is, that, that feeling of really it's important and it's a very humbling experience as well when you save someone's life you know, there's nothing more nothing more important in this world than saving someone's life um, so how did you then take that and start building up you know United at right so you, you had to you, either every cycles didn't just come by itself right you had to get people to donate you had to raise funds for it etc so how did you get people to follow you? What was the messaging? Was the messaging that simple? As I said before, is that, you know, I'm saving lives. And that's, you know, where, you know... Is Action is an example. And, 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 and actually showing the light coming out of your face. 
you know, when I saved someone and I came back with that big smile and telling my friends I just saved someone and, and talking about it to my friends, getting them so excited about this, I remember people seeing me, younger kids than I was 16 and a half, kids who were 13, 14 said, we also want to join. We also, you know, they, they right away realized that this is a great thing that they could be part of. And I, I was running around every day to emergency calls. People saw me in emergency calls running from a call to another call. And people started asking me, How do you, what do you do in order to join? And I used to go train these people. I used to go recruit them. I used to go from neighborhood to neighborhood, to city to city, to speak to people about this. I, I really felt like we're, we have a mission here that we need to have more and more PR and explaining what, what we're doing here and get people excited. And people just followed. I, I had, it's funny, like today we have 6,000 volunteers. I meet people today who are come, come to me. I just had a guy who wrote a post and he, and he said, I just became, he just became a top heart surgeon. And he wrote a post on the, on the, on the internet. He said, I just want to say thank Ellie Beer for inspiring me many, many years <laughs> when I was a child to become a volunteer at Tella. And today he's a heart surgeon expert. And I'm saying these people were inspired because they saw that not only that I preached about it, I actually, I actually did what I was preaching. I was actually doing it all day, and I still do it. I actually still run out to emergencies all the time. Mm -hmm. People see me there, and people say, "Wow, you know, we thought now you would sit down and put your 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 you know feet on the on the desk and <laughs> let other people do it." No, I actually, my children, who saw me for many many years, run out on a Friday night dinner when I was tired from a long week, wanted to just have a good glass of wine and some good chicken and beef. <laughs> and they saw me not drinking wine because I wanted to go out to emergency calls. And they were like saying, Dad, you know, you, you, we, we didn't see you during the whole week. Why can't you stay with us? And all of a sudden I told them that they have something more important. And if someone needs somebody help now, someone's, someone's now having a heart attack. And my kids now, all of them are volunteers of Atella. Besides for my younger, she's, She's just 12 years old, <laughs> but, but um, she's, she's going to be one. Yeah, listen, my 14-year-old daughter just took a first volunteer course, first aid course in, in, in Orot, right, in, in yeah. school. And, you know, it's the same concept. You know, she wanted to know what to do in the case of a situation and help people. And that's the, I think that's the, the best way to really is, if you want to help people, you know, join itself. If you really want to make a difference in saving someone's life, and that's the... No, because that, that's, that's, I mean, to get 6,000 volunteers, and, and this is one of the things I, I, th I, I think... I think you get 10, 10 or 20,000, it's just, we're just, we're very, very careful who we recruit and everything else. We have thousands of people now waiting, and actually some of them, it's very, very funny to see how many thousands of people are just begging us to join. I, and I have, uh, I just told you a story mm -hmm. right when you came in. One of the, I have funny stories all the time. I just called an Uber for my daughter. She needed an Uber to go somewhere. In Israel, they have Uber, but it's taxis. So I called an Uber, and this guy uh, uh, called me to say he's downstairs. And then he says, are you Ellie Beer? I said, yes. He says, my name is Ishak. 
I'm an Arab volunteer in New York <laughs> from East Jerusalem. Yeah. And I'm so proud. I'm taking you. I said, well, you're not taking me. You're taking my daughter. He says, wow, thank you so much for, for the opportunity. I said, this guy is an Arab taxi driver from East Jerusalem. And he is so excited to be part of United Atello, which is incredible. Correct. And that goes right into my next question. So the, the fact is that United Atello, and the reason why it says United, like I mentioned earlier, is you're uniting everyone. It's not just Jews. It's not just Arabs. It's not just the religious, the not religious. They're all working together. Right, which is a fascinating thing. You don't really have that. I mean, you have it in hospitals, for sure, because you have all different types there. But you don't really have that in a cohesive organization like 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 you you know here. And so, how did you how did that messaging transcend? Right, how were you able to bring the, the Arab volunteers? And it's not just in East Jerusalem; it's it's everywhere. Well, it's not so easy. Uh, I'll tell you something. Hospitals, it does exist, but you pay people to be workers. Really. Correct. You're paying Arab workers to work, with Jewish workers. If they don't get paid, they're going to be in strike and leave the hospital. We don't pay, we pay zero. This taxi driver goes out to emergency calls and he, he loses money by not working when he's on the emergency call. We got thousands of people who are coming from opposite sides. Not only that, they sometimes come from hostile opposite sides. Uh, Forget about now um, Arabs and Jews. Let's talk about Jews and Jews, okay? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Babov and, uh, and Vizhnitz. And they have two Vizhnitz, they have two Babov, they have two Satmar, and they have two Litvaks, <laughs> two Chabad. Everything is, everything, yeah. everything is like now into politics and everything. In the religious society, people don't get along together. Some of them don't even dawn in the same shul. They don't pray in the same shuls as, mm -hmm. as other religious people. We have opposite sides who were usually not even get married with each other. Like we, they won't even have a, a marriage with their children to get together. But now because of United Hatzala, they love each other. And then we have secular Jews who would never have anything to do with religious Jews. Tremendous hatred between the, the groups in Israel, unfortunately, because maybe it's the politicians, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe yes. Maybe it's the fact that some, you know, everyone has some, I, I don't blame one side, I blame everyone for hatred. Mm -hmm. Hatred is easy to fall into. Look what happened in, in Europe, how hatred created such, such a devastation for the whole Europe. Israel, we, don't, we have a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of conflicts between people. And I realized if we find something that's a, com a common interest for all of us, they will all join in. And then I realized I could have Arabs who are, they hardly know Hebrew, but they want to save lives. And they want to volunteer in saving lives, which is the highest level of saving lives. And have Hasidim, and have settlers, and have guys who don't even believe in God, and everything else, um, um, join in for, for this organization. We will, we will actually create a new, a new society in Israel. And our society of United Atzala made, I think, one of the biggest changes in this country. Because there is nothing else like, like United Atzala mm -hmm. that I know of that's so diverse, from Satmer Hasidim to secular Jews from a kibbutz who probably don't fast on Yom Kippur, 
and then from settlers in Hebron to Arabs in East Jerusalem. And Christians and Druze and everything in between, mm-hmm. men and women, Hatzel and Israel have men and women serving together, even in the religious society. We have Haredi women doing work as volunteers and responding to emergencies. Some of these women are not even allowed to drive, but because they are saving lives, they actually got their rabbis because it's like a very, it's a very mm-hmm. different society that you used to and I'm yeah. used to. And some of them, the women are not allowed to drive, and some of the Arab women don't drive, but now because they are saving lives, they actually are driving, not only on a weekday, they're driving on Shabbat. One million dollars if you give them to drive on Shabbat, they, they will never do it. But if you give them an opportunity to save someone's life, it's not even a second thought. Not even a second thought. Just jump right in. And, and they will actually drive to save someone's life without asking a question, is that our Hasidic? Or is that Jewish? Or is that religious? Or is that mm-hmm. Ashkenazi? They don't care. Once they're in this organization, United Hatzalah, they're going to save a life. They don't ask questions. On Shabbat or Yom Kippur, which for any other reason they would never drive. Right. And so, you know, we, we have a few more minutes, so I'm going to just try and get a little bit more in, in this. So is there someone that made an impact on you as a leader? My father impacted me a lot. My father was a young uh, kid in America, growing up in the Low East Side. And my father realized they have a war in Europe and Jews are getting slaughtered when he was a kid. And my father went ahead and he started raising money um, through an organization that doesn't exist anymore, but it was called Vada Hatzala, very similar to our name. It was a Hatzala society uh, in, in, in America that was actually um, created to save Jewish, Jewish lives from Europe, running away from Europe. And I, and I remember my father telling me stories as if, as if I was a kid. And my father told me that, that that actually was one of the most influential things on me. My, I said to my father, was it easy to raise money because Jews were slaughtered? Was it easy for you? Would, mm. would people go ahead and just support you? I was like maybe 10 years old when my father told me these stories. And my father said, many times, Jewish people threw my father out of their businesses and said that you're, the Jews in Europe don't interest us. They're not our problem. My father went into diamond stores, gold stores, you know, gar- you know garment stores, in, in Manhattan. My father grew up in the Lower East Side, and he would come with the pushka, his tzedakah box, and help the Jews in Europe. And this is a big organization, Hatzalah, Rabbi Kotler was involved, mm-hmm. all the big rabbis. And my father said many times, he was so, he was crying when he left the stores, and people said, you know what, the Jews in Europe have money, let them take care of their own. And my father said, I never gave up. And he says, I said, I asked my father, how did you have the strength of going continuing? And and uh, and my father says, and then I went into a store and someone was crying when he said, I want to help. And he and I he saw he, he told me he had stories of people said, I don't have money, but I'm gonna give you everything I have. And they would give him five dollars, which is a lot of money then. And they would say, Please save a Jew in my behalf. And my father was a very young kid. And when I heard these stories, and I grew up, and I said, 
if I know people's lives depend upon my work, I will never give up, even if it's very, very hard. And believe me, I have very hard situations. I have to fly all around the world. This organization is a huge, a huge, and we go out to 1,700 emergencies a day. It costs a lot of money to operate this organization. But every time I knock and I meet someone and I ask for money, I always think about my father when he was a young boy asking for money to save Jews in Europe. Now, my father was actually very proud of me that I'm not only saving Jewish people, I'm saving everyone, mm -hmm. which is the most Jewish thing to do. And whenever I hear anyone who says to me, your problems in Israel don't interest me, and I'm not interested, or people find many excuses why not to support. I have a book that I'm writing one day of why not to support anything. And people could find many, many excuses why not to support. And I know you interviewed other people like mm -hmm. Joe Gitler, my good friend, who's an amazing guy, does Leket, and many other organizations that are great. People, n n oh, none of these people have an easy job. They work hard, they believe in the mission, and they never give up. If you give up, you know, you'll never, I mean, you can't give up. This is something so important. And my father was my example for everything. Hmm. Got it. And so, what was one of the more important decisions I think you made with United That's All that stands out? My biggest decision was to break through non-Jewish communities. Um, my first decision, we started from Orthodox communities only. We were, we, we were originally Haredi ultra-Orthodox, and maybe some modern Orthodox like myself, but but I decided to open Hatzalah to every type of person, no matter who you are. It was very hard. We started politics. What was the pushback? Well, I, I had a group of people from the very ultra, ultra, you know, Orthodox community, which I love. I love every type of mm -hmm. person, but some of them don't get it. And they thought it was a it was a club and I actually had a very big pushback from a bunch of people who actually started fighting me about this and saying Ellie how could you join people who are not Shomer Shabbos or not they don't eat kosher or they don't is to this organization and I told them that we are we're not a synagogue we're not a, a mikvah we're a life-saving organization and anyone who needs help, we should help. And we can't only have volunteers who are Orthodox. And they went pushing back for this, and I had to go to the biggest rabbi in Israel. Hmm. And, and, and he... Actually, the biggest, most, the most respectable rabbi in the ultra-Orthodox community hmm. was Rabbi El Yashiv. Okay, yeah. no, and I sat by him, and I'm a very modern guy. You see me, I have no beard, and we are... Um, I wear a pink shirt, and I, I come over to this most religious rabbi in Meir Sharim, and I, and I told him my vision about having non-Jewish people, non-religious people volunteering, and he was all for it. And he said, of course, we need to keep the halacha. So I said, what does that mean? He says, keeping the halacha means that if you have an emergency on Shabbos, you're not allowed to even think for one second. You have to run the fastest you could. That's keeping Allah. He said, Pikuach Nefesh, 
uh, danger for someone's life is more important than the whole Torah. And he says, whatever you do is the right thing to do. And he says, you should give the mitzvah of saving lives to every human being. Because if someone should, think about it, how many people in their lives changed because they became Hatzalah volunteers. And Rabbi Eliashiv, who was a great leader, was the one who told me, you should join in any person who wants to save a life. And that's what actually gave me the, the power to, to go against anyone who was fighting me about this. When I joined the Arabs, the United States, people thought Ellie went crazy. What is he, a liberal, left-wing? Um, uh, then it was a whole story with Rabin and everything, you know, the whole yeah. you know, peace process. I said, this has nothing to do with politics. Were, were they accepting of you? Meaning, you, you see the one side, right? You see the, the, the Haredi side, the ultra-Orthodox, but on the flip side is you, a Jew going into some Arab community saying, guys, come to me. We're going to help save lives in your community and beyond. Were they like, like why? Were they like, you know, wondering like, who are you? Like, what validity is there? Were you already saving lives in their communities? And that's how they saw you? So it's interesting. I actually got a phone call from uh, Moran Leon and, uh, and another guy, Muhammad Asli, a few Arab volunteers from East Jerusalem who wanted to join Hatzalah. The funny part is one of them called me up and he didn't have a good Hebrew accent. And he actually called me up and he said, I want to meet you. I said, what is it about? He said, about Haz- I want to join Hazola. And I thought he said Hezbollah. <laughs> so I actually, <laughs> I actually thought he got the wrong number. <laughs> so, uh, so he actually turned to me and I said, you, you want to join Hezbollah? He said, no Hezbollah, I want to join Hezbollah. <laughs> so I said, okay, Hazola means save lives. Hezbollah is the exact opposite. And I actually said to him, let's meet. And he told me his story about his father having a heart attack and waiting for 55 minutes for help. He says, I couldn't help save my father, but I promised myself that I'm going to learn to be a volunteer and save lives. And I want to be part of Hatzalah because that's the right way to do it. And I had chills again. And I said, you know what? This 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 is God's call to join these guys. And I said, Alan Masalan, let's go ahead and do it. And I remember the first interview I had, you know, these guys came from a different, it's completely different. You know, Americans are very into volunteering. I know America is probably the, the largest volunteer corps in the world for anything is in America. Mm-hmm. Israel is huge. We have 45,000 nonprofits in Israel. We have thousands and thousands of maybe hundreds of thousands of volunteers in Israel. Don't forget, every volu- every kid goes to the army for three years, he volunteers, mm-hmm. you don't pay. You get money for hardly uh, no. nothing, for Bisley. And uh, and you you actually, uh, you volunteer. You li- and people put their life in Israel to build this country as a volunteer. So these Arabs, they grew up a little differently. They don't go to army, right? So I interviewed them. And I remember one of the funniest stories I had is one of these Arabs, who was a really nice guy, and he was so excited. He says, I want to volunteer every day. I said, it's 24 hours a day, you know, every day, 24 hours a day. You have to be on call. Something happens, Uh you run out. So he says to me, you know, I'm so excited. How much money am I getting for volunteering? (laughs) So I I had to explain to him what volunteering is. 
And he gets so excited when I told him that he's not getting any money. Not only that, he's going to have to pay for gasoline from his own pocket. It's going to cost him money when he loses from his job if he doesn't come to work because he has to be, go to a course or whatever. People, the more they give, the better people they become. And that's how I created this society. Today we have 550 Arab volunteers in Hatzalah, in Israel, which is outstanding, and it's, and it's growing more and more. You know, we have two volunteers in Israel. You're going to laugh. I, I don't know if anyone else who's listening to this would laugh, but two of them are incredible Arab volunteers. One's name is Ahmad Yassin, mm-hmm. which is, I don't know if you remember, the head of the Hamas. His name was Ahmad Yassin. <laughs> <laughs> but he's an incredible volunteer. His name is Ahmed Yassin. What could you do? It's yeah. like his name. And the other one is Nasrallah. Okay. Same guy as Nasrallah is, uh, from uh, our neighbors yeah. up north. And Hassan Nasrallah. That's his name, Hassan Nasrallah. But these guys are two Israeli Arabs who are very proud to be in Hatzalah, mm-hmm. saving hundreds of Jewish lives and non-Jewish lives. And they are part of this organization. And we have Haredi guys who are in Meisharim, and guys who are uh, in, 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 uh, in the Shamron, in the Binyamin, in anywhere you want around the country, we are there. Got it. So one last question, and then we're going to wrap it up, is what leadership qualities do you look for in people, right? I mean, that's, that's a, you know, it's a little open-ended, but something that you, you see, you know, and because again, if you're, any volunteer is somewhat of a leader, right? They're not, they're taking it upon themselves to lead by example. They want to, they don't want to sit back. They want to do something that, that is meaningful to them. You know, so what, what is it, what quality is there that you look for? So we have hundreds of leaders in this organization because it's all built around people who are, they call it like coordinators or head of divisions or, you know, different, it's like, it's like, it's like a pyramid of leaders, right? And people actually, hundreds of them around the country who are leaders of divisions, smaller, one group is 200 and then he has under him, everyone, he has someone in charge of, of 50 and then, you know, it's, it's a mm-hmm. bunch of leaders. The thing that I look at, the most important thing in leadership, in my opinion, is a person who's humble. Anyone who's not humble will not be a leader in this organization because I think the key to good leadership is a humble person. And you could teach a lot of people to be leaders, but if they don't have, if they have the gava, like they say, their pride, and they're very egoistic, they cannot be leaders in a volunteer organization. They could be good leaders in the army because there you listen to orders, mm-hmm. and it's completely different than in Hatzalah. Hatzalah is all about you have to respect the people who actually are your leaders. And if you don't, if, you, if your leader doesn't know how to respect you, and if your leader is not humble, he's not going to succeed. And that's the first thing I'm looking for in every solid leader. Uh, and, you know, with that, you know, for those who are listening, and it's an ever-growing listenership, how could they learn more about United Atzala? If they want to donate, where do they go? Very easy. We have a website. Because Hatzel is so hard to pronounce, and people by mistake go into Hezbollah and donate there by mistake. So we actually, we have a website called israelrescue.org, and uh, it's easy, you just go on, you learn more about the organization, it's 
israelrescue.org, one, one word, and uh, no IL or anything mm-hmm. else, just org. And you learn everything about Hatzalah, you could, uh, you could actually register if you want to volunteer in Israel, you want to donate, great idea, a really good thing to do. Uh, I think people get inspired, they should do things right away and not wait because they're going to forget about it. So they should go on right away. If they listen to the podcast and they want to do something, they should go on. And who knows, maybe one day they'll be a volunteer themselves or get helped by a volunteer. So. In, indeed. And, you know, thank you so much for your time. And, for, again, for those listening, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, give us a five-star review on any of the platforms that you are listening on. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Ellie, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, and I uh, hope to see you again. Definitely. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends about it as well. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Lastly, don't forget to check out my other podcast, Plugged In. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.